This podcast was brought to you in association with Bloomsbury India. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Kitabi Karwan podcast. Today we have with us Nitin Sekar, one of the most interesting people I have interviewed in recent times. Nitin is a conservation scientist interested in human rights and animal welfare and his book that we're going to talk about today what's left of the jungle is a very interesting example of narrative non-fiction dealing with the conflicts that happens in societies which cohabit with the environment in today's world where we are living in an increasingly urbanized society understanding how the conflict between man and animal and I actually am incorrect when I call it a conflict but understanding how they cohabit with each other is such an important issue narrated from the viewpoint of Akshu one of his closest friends and assistants and at the same time his own observations it's a very interesting read before without giving anything away let's jump right into the interview hey everyone and welcome to the kitabi karwan podcast welcome nitin to the podcast as well uh, i'm so glad to have you on and uh, for everyone you can see the copy of the book here it's actually a review copy so that's why the artwork is in the one which you'll actually be seeing oh, but yeah. yes yes that's the beautiful book right there uh, so nitin before we kick this off i'll just give you about a minute to just talk about your book and let my audience know what the book's about and what you intended to achieve with it sure great okay so yeah so the book's called what's left of the jungle And so basically I'm an elephant ecologist and conservationist and so one of the central questions of my field is how are there so many wild elephants in India India has a large population of wild Asian elephants in the world around uh, 30,000 or so which is about 60% of the world's population of wild Asian elephants and that's despite the fact that India has almost 1.4 billion people and the fact that in elephants actually end up killing about 500 people a year in human elephant conflict um and eating the crops or pretty destroying the property in some way uh, of about 500,000 families a year and so one of the big questions because in much of the rest of the world this doesn't happen right you know in the US they kill all their wolves same in western europe there aren't you know wild tigers in you know in most of china for instance so so why is it that india is so so willing to live why are indians so willing to live with such a dangerous wildlife. Um and so in order to address this question in a different way, um I wrote about one of my field assistants who then became my guru and, and my good friend. Uh we call him Akshu Atri in the book. Um and Akshu was born in a forest in Baksa what became Baksa Tiger Reserve. I um, mean lived alongside wild elephants and other, you know, uh, dangerous wild animals growing up. Um elephants have done all sorts of stuffed his property and he's kind of struggled with them um but yet you can kind of see this sort of this 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 relationship that that the community there has with these wild animals which to me is the best answer to the question is that how it how is it that we right. still have so much wildlife um and so the book is supposed to show show shows the relationship through his perspective um mm-hmm. and this describe topic on conservation and indian conservation challenges through my perspective right hey So um Nitin before we delve into the crux of the matter I just wanted to get an idea of um you know whether this were whether there were elements of fiction associated with the uh, book as well or because you described like it's based on the experience of your assistant and someone who's really experienced all these things and your own obviously so uh 
I, I mean, obviously, it's great that I can't classify it into either non-fiction or fiction. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I would still want to hear from you. What, how do you consider this piece? Yeah, it is absolutely supposed to be a non-fiction book. It is, right. you know, it is intended to be, you know, as true as possible. So right. a lot of the, you know, a lot of the material comes from, you know, interviews with either Akshu or his family or other members of the community um, that worked in Baksa. Um, and so they lived in Baksa and people I worked with in Baksa. Um, so you know, people's memories may not be perfect, um, especially when right. it comes to timelines. I'm sure that I didn't get the right. timeline exactly right. Those kind of things right. are there. But I think it falls, falls solidly in the category of um, you know, creative nonfiction or narrative nonfiction. Um, right. And there's nothing. There's nothing in it that's intentionally. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's quite that's quite interesting because uh, and I, I think narrative nonfiction is an excellent way of grasping such important topics. Right. I mean, uh, as as important it is to understand how the ecology works and this. I mean, I, and it might sound really horrible to say this, but there would be a lot of readers who actually might not intuitively pick up a standard nonfiction book about say the same topic as they might head towards a narrative nonfiction because it just engages them on a much better level, right? So, uh, Nitin, just tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, it's a very uh, interesting area that you work in and uh, an interesting book that you've ended up writing. So, how did you get here? Was Were you just this way ever since you were a kid or uh, was there a particular, I don't know, spark to the fire, if I can put it that way? Sure. Um well, if by this way you mean like sort of really interested in this issue, yeah, I've actually I've actually been interested in wildlife um since I was a little little kid, um and uh, apparently I liked like street dogs so much when we visited India when I was like, I, I I was born and raised in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. that maybe my accent sort of indicates, and so um and so yeah, my my parents said they saw me like following street dogs and stuff, and so then they bought me a membership to Birmingham Zoo in Alabama where mm-hmm. I grew up, and I just wanted to go every week. I, made them take me all the time. So I was always interested in animals and wildlife and just the sort of the essence of life that seems to go, you know, beyond humanity, right? It's not just us. Um, and, and figuring out a way to protect that. And then as, as I learned more about, you know, the, the threats that are facing wildlife, uh, you know, across the world, especially in India, I, I wanted to help deal with them. Um, but then gradually, I think the maturity aspect is that I began to realize that you know, it's not sort of a good and evil story. It's not like oh, people are evil and we're taking all the habitat from wildlife, um, which is somehow inherently good. It's actually mm-hmm. a much more complicated story about you know, we have so many people and many of them don't have access to enough resources or opportunities, and they're you know, living alongside often very dangerous wildlife. So right. you know, I I want to be a champion of both human rights and animal welfare and conservation. Um, and right. so then how, how do we kind of tackle this complex problem? Right. And, and I think you hit the hammer on the nail right at the beginning when you were talking about the book itself, when you described how people, uh, you know, Europe kills away its tigers and America kills its wolves and the Indian society isn't able to do that. And it, it's sort of a very weird dichotomy how it kicks in that, well, the West is able to kind of do a lot more about animal conservation now because of the way their economies are structured, they have a much higher uh, per capita income and well access to you know, general social services as opposed to India, as you mentioned, people don't really have access to a lot of basic human rights and human uh, condi- uh, I don't know services that you might con- consider essential for human existence. So uh, in, I mean in your experience or in your work, how much has uh, the role of 
I I um I don't want to call it economic development or the economic status of a society, but uh let's let's just look at a more uh home, a more comprehensive term looking at how the economical, social, and cultural development of a civilization or a country or a society. What role does their level of development in that on that parameter kind of play in their relation with ecological development? I mean, you had this interesting opportunity to be growing up in the U.S. and do a lot of your research work here in India as well. So, what was your uh, what's your observation or takeaway on this? Is that actually something that plays a real role? Because uh, I, I mean, I apologize for the really long winded question because uh, that's how most people tend to look at things, right? I mean, as you said that. people aren't inherently good or evil but uh, most people tend to look at when it comes to the environment or uh, ecology as good or evil right uh, but just either the corporations bad because they want their greedy profits or it's human beings are bad who want to kill animals or they're inherently good that well they'll forego everything else and kind of uh, work towards the conservation of environment or of wildlife so what's what's just been your uh experience in on the field more mostly yeah i i think um so there are i i think some general sort of environmental theories out there that i'm not actually as well versed with um in as it should be the things like the kuznets curve i believe where you know folks you know initially their main interest might will be in industrial development or you know basically improving their the, their economic situation and then as society gets to a certain point then they have sort of the the, the luxury to be concerned mm-hmm. about the environment mm-hmm. um and and there's also you know I think there's also like a certain psycho- psychological concept but hierarchy of you know, um of needs uh mm-hmm. and so like you were okay first you know, look at your survival and then you start looking at higher things ultimately like art and, and sort of right. um intellectual stimulation and so but i think i think broadly i i think that these models aren't entirely wrong um i think that's mm-hmm. probably true at least at a society level um that you know the people sort of um especially people who don't even have their basic needs met um you know there that's going to be their first priority right um and so and then i think in some ways you can see that you know akshu was born and raised in a forest um and he clearly has a very deep connection with the forest and he has deep interest mm-hmm. in wildlife but for most of his life he wasn't thinking thinking oh my gosh i can't believe all this wildlife is disappearing even when he was aware of it to some degree right. His thing is like I don't have a job, <laughs> you know. I I can't I don't I can't feed I can't feed my family. I don't have what I need to get married for the the woman I love. Like you know, these are the things that that occupy him. And I think I think there is some truth to the idea that um, governments in particular are going to respond to that first. They're gonna they're gonna that's what's going to give them legitimacy is if they can give people. Um, sort of economic stability, and also then when you you know you once someone has a TV and they can see that. people on the other side of the world are driving nice cars and they have you know like once you get on the sort of material treadmill and people think that that's what's going to make them happy um right. a certain proportion of people think it's going to make them happy then that's all the stress on the environment right um and um i think that's that's true but at the same time you know like i said india um kind of and, and so many people around the world but i'm most familiar with india like kind of shows you it's not a simple correlation right because you have people who have so little and yet when elf comes and breaks into their kitchen and runs off with their grain or whatever um you know they're not in india they're not like let's go and shoot this elephant right right 
they like, you know, Bichara, they also, the elephant also, they've lost so much jungle. We take so much from the jungle. What are they going to eat? They have such a big stomach. We have to fill it. Like there's an empathy there. Um, And and I think that, um, I think the culture, culture actually really has a role in it. Um, at least certainly in explaining the, the South Asian phenomena. And I think mm-hmm. now increasingly, you know, people in, people in Boulder, Colorado are tolerating bears coming in and eating out of the trash, right? Like, it's, it's a right. shift that can happen. It's not a simple um, economic right. equation. Right. No, I, it's great that you mentioned culture, right, and the Southeast Asian effect. Because uh, that's just something, again, I don't know if it's, again, a thing about development that's kicking in. Because uh, if you le- read any aboriginal stories of any culture that exists you have indigenous societies being very respectful of the environment around them or engaging with them something of the of the same context as that you're talking about that if a elephant you know in india if an elephant breaks into someone's house and takes away the grains they're much more accepting of it but uh, let's say let, let's just take juxtapose this with an example of a panther in mumbai right people are the first cry is not that oh we've taken the land away and they have a right to be heard uh, it's more of please let's just I, and obviously it has an element of danger associated with it which an elephant might not but my point being that it's this quite noticeable empirical observation that there are situations where a developed society or a developed way of civilization tends to kind of look at it as a direct confrontational conflict while uh, a society which is designed to be more respectful or acknowledge the role of the environment is designed to have a more respectful or more conciliatory view of any interaction with the environment. Is that something that you observed or is this is something just, I don't know, does, does this have any sure. deeper roots or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think you're asking very interesting questions, um, and then you can tell you're you're struggling with them the same way I do, right? To sort of yeah. kind of find a pattern in a very complicated tapestry of right. of sort of, of things, um, and and so like so yeah, I mean, and so and just you know, for instance, you know, it, even even though in, in Mumbai people don't always react super welcomely welcomingly to leopards, right? Still, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. what other city in the world can you big city can you in the world can you find? Where there is literally an animal that can just drag children uh, out of there. I mean, it's, it's, it is again, you know, it's, um, and so, so a couple of things that I'll, I'll say. So, one is, um, you know, just as a sort of a disclaimer, it's obviously tons of diversity, right? So, even within a given village, some people will be like, sure, you know, that, you know, elephant is Ganesh Baba. Others will be like, well, elephants also have a soul. And others will be like, you know, screw it. I want to, I want to hunt it. I, I wish, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like right. it's the only the government, the government will get me if I do it. That's why I'm not doing it, right? So, and then right. that diversity is also there on the uh, side. Right? In the U.S., there's people who will be like, "Oh, well, why would you do? You know, why would you right. kill this animal? It's just bonding some business." And everyone else pulls out a gun, and other people pull out a gun and shoot chipmunks for digging right. a hole in the yard, right? So, right. so the diversity is there. Um, but I, I, I'm actually really interested in this question of of indigenous cultures, and I, I'm actually. I feel like I've gotten different signals from the um, from the qualitative world and the quantitative world. So, okay. um, so, so in the quantitative world, um, so there is good evidence that um, indigenous peoples, and these are in, in the papers I've read, they've they've been sort of classified as people who have a clear ancestral connection with their land, um, mm-hmm. including like you know their their whole cosmology is sort of connected to their land. Um, they do a better job of preserving their their forests 
um, than people who come in you, right? So if you're new, you're more likely to be like, all right, if I cut down these trees, I can sell it. Um, okay. And I can make, you know, I can make a buck. Whereas um, people who are connecting that land say, like, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. These forests belong to right. it. Like, yes, right. I can take some to build a house here, but if the forest overall disappears, you know, it affects right. their, their worldview. Um, I think maybe, you know, elephants in India are sort of similar in that sense, right? Like it's, we, even when we're frustrated with them, and we see opportunities mm -hmm. as a society, we're like, we do, do we want a world without elephants? And the, and the net answer is, is no, mm -hmm. right? Um, but on the other hand, when it comes to, um, when it comes to hunting and wildlife, I actually, I was, um, before I, uh, I'm at my current job, I was at my, I'm, before now, when I was at my previous job, um, I was at a job where we actually did a literature review to see, okay, do indigenous people do a better job of maintaining animal populations on their land than non-indigenous peoples? And we honestly couldn't find evidence of that. Like basically when indigenous peoples got guns, they were, they were quite prone to overhunting in many situations, right? So whatever hunting taboos they had, whatever, you know, whatever sort of cultural taboos they had weren't necessarily enough to offset maybe the economic yeah. benefits of selling meat or those those opportunities and so it's it's again so it's not a simple indigenous non-indigenous story there either right. um but yeah when i've read indigenous stories i think what is true is that um i remember there's also indigenous western europeans right so they were also indigenous yeah. in the land they right. hunted they hunted that stuff um so um so that that's also there's some there's some diversity there but it's true then certainly when i've read native american um, stories, um, stories from the, the, like the Khoisan in Southern Africa, like, basically there are certainly groups whose stories give individual animals a sense of agency and sort of kind of sees them, see them in, the, in the world maybe differently than, um, than some cultures. And broadly, the, what I've read is that in Asia and Native America, there's sort of more of a tendency to see animals as individual beings that may have some entitlements. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas in Africa and Europe, there's a little bit less of that. That's quite interesting. So particularly that literature review that you mentioned about uh, that indigenous cultures when, I don't know, I mean, in a very blunt way, exposed to guns and had the ability to use them kind of that changed the dynamic and they were prone to overhunting. That's a very interesting insight because that's not generally something that you come across. But common perception is one which, well, I asked you of. And well, that's very interesting but Nitin I'm going to take a step back and come back to the book right and more about the origins of it so what prompted you to write this particular book and in this particular frame framework right uh I mean we did we did discuss how uh like narrative non-fiction is a great way of appealing to people but what prompted it what kind of just thought about this idea of you know this is what I want to write about or this this is a story worth telling or okay yeah, um, so I guess I have two, two things kind of intersected here. Um, so one is, so I went to Baksa to study the role of elephants and seed dispersal, right? Which is a very specific mm -hmm. ecological question. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, you know, because I didn't want to be a conservationist and I thought that would be useful. And mm -hmm. then what I found was this like, this complicated social and economic and cultural story that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just didn't end up, it didn't show up in my dissertation at all. Um, and I realized, you know, I've, I've spent I've spent six years working on a on a PhD that you know, is about something that isn't as important as other stuff I learned, and also honestly that no one's going to read. Right? PhDs are read by a handful of people um, at best. Um, and so I kind of thought, you know what? I want to write like an anti-dissertation, 
I want to write <laughs> basically about all the things I learned that are actually, I think, core to this question of conservation and how humans right. interact with other species um, and how we interact with each other when it comes to conservation. Um, and I want to make it as readable and interesting as the topic is, not sort of mm -hmm. couch it in all the sort of sciencey stuff that um, or technocratic stuff that then is inaccessible. Um, right. And so that was there. And, and, and as at first, I just actually wrote you know, the, the, the book has two shifting perspectives, right? So right. one is, is is from my perspective, um, mm -hmm. and others from Shuatri's. Um, and the the first draft of the book was just my perspective, me trying to kind of process the stuff, and it wasn't very good, honestly. Um, and at some point, I realized, you know, that Akshu's story really captures the tensions of conservation and the challenges of living with wildlife and, you know, the difficult choices we have to make as a society uh, when it comes to animal well-being and human well-being better than anything else. And so I went to him and asked if he wanted to, to do this. He was you know, obviously extremely enthusiastic. And so then we worked on it together and ended up with this, with this product. I'm quite, I'm quite quite glad that this happened, but um, again, this is a question, and I and I get the irony of asking this on a podcast which is themed on books. But why did you choose a written format? Like, is was there any particular? I mean, I and the questions. I think it goes beyond what a preferable mode is. I mean, you could very easily have made a website or a blog or I don't know. Like, there's just way too many other mediums, right? So, uh, why this particular one? What uh, drove you towards this meeting? Um, well, I think I don't think I have a compelling answer for that. Perhaps um, I think part of it is just my comfort. Like I think one of my one of my skills is sort of to to tell a story through mm -hmm. words. I don't know that I have the same you know the, the ability to put together a great documentary and um, right. that sort of thing. And and then also you know names are changed. There's a lot of stuff you can do with a book, even a nonfiction book. Um, right. That sort of kind of allow you to speak truths that may not be, you know, that may be a little bit harder to do without you know, putting people at such a risk um, okay. in throughout other media. Um, but I mean, I think I guess I guess I guess one part of it's just you know it's, it's a romanticism. I love books. I love I love story. I like I like I think those I think that medium has 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 helped me see the world in a richer way. Um, right. And I think that I think that um, yeah, I do think that other media's can can't quite substitute uh, for that. In some I, I'm so glad you mentioned that you like books because that's uh, that's something I really wanted to talk to you about. That uh, in again, most people who answer this question somehow mention this, and that's where it leads. That most writers or anyone who chooses to write somehow is a prolific author reader as well, right? It's it's stuck into that story of that person sharpening their axe. Right? It's one of the things that keeps you sharp at what you do. So, uh, Nitin, have you been a reader ever since you were a kid, or, or was it something you picked up in, like later in life? How, how? Tell us your story about reading. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I, I think I've been interested in reading as long as far back as I can remember. Um, I, I don't know if I ever classified as a I would qualify as a prolific either then or now. Um, but yeah, I really certainly really enjoyed it. Um, I think. You know, early, the earliest thing I remember is that there were like these books called Nature's Children in the school library. Um, that basically every book was about a different animal, and so I would, you know, I pick those up. Um, right. And then I sort of gradually graduated. And, and did, did you did you have Wishbone here? And no, I think it was it was probably too early. There's post liberalization. It's it's a, it's a TV show about a dog that reads books. So no, um, I I wouldn't have seen it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so Wishbone basically you know, is Jack Russell Terrier, and he in, in this thing he reads books, right. and and so like that was sort of the show introduced a bunch of European classics, right? And so, so I would, so I would, you know, I was like, okay, I, I didn't know what was out there. Mm-hmm. I just go and read these books because that's what I was introducing me onto over TV. And then over, I think in middle school, I suddenly realized that everything I'd been reading was like mostly mostly British or American. Like I. Mm-hmm. Actually, my whole worldview, aside from, I think, my Perima, my aunt gave me like, a, you know, the Radhikopalachari version of the Ramayana and Mahabharata. But aside from that, oh, wow. everything, everything else was, was Western was mm-hmm. and Western fiction. And I was like, wow, my whole, my whole imagination, my whole worldview must be structured by this. Right. Um, and I grew up in Alabama where racism was an issue. And I was like, why am I? Why, 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 what about other cultures? What about the cultures that are gay? Right. That right. have been sort of suppressed. And so... So since then, I actually maybe I'm overcompensated. Over- so I like I read a lot of you know I try to read very diverse voices. Um, I read way more nonfiction than fiction now, um, and um, I I'm just I'm really curious about how you know at the end you know it's all in English. I can't read well in any other language, but still I'm curious about how I can see more of you know the world through through diverse right. perspectives. Um, yeah. And that's the first. Hey, honestly, I'm quite impressed with the fact that you were in middle school when you realized this uh, important bit, which almost all of us do at some point in our lives, that, well, the kind of work that you're reading is might be quite homogeneous. And uh, I personally experienced it with regard to, uh, I mean, on the same level that you did. Obviously, as a kid, I read a lot more. And I think you don't have a lot of uh, Indian authors who are catering to teenagers or, uh, I mean, now they do, but earlier it wasn't. And uh, subsequently, like in my college years and like just when my college was ending, I realized a lot of my reading in terms of literature, right? Like reading fiction, it's geared towards reading either Western fiction or Indian fiction, but it's high fiction, if I can put it that way, right? Like what's deemed to be literature rather than say, um, I know I started reading a lot more uh, trans, obviously like you, I can't read a lot of things apart from English. I can just read Hindi. But I started reading a lot more of translations, right? Like Bengali literature or uh, voices from... And even in Western fiction, there is a tendency to have a certain voice dominant, right? Like, I mean, uh, if you... There would be people who'd be reading Japanese fiction, but 90% of it would be Murakami, not any other author. So, I mean, you're kind of restricting your view over there also to a very particular kind of author or kind of class. So, that I think is a important enough thought for any reader to ponder over and make choices accordingly. Uh, but Nitin, uh, tell me this. I'm not going to ask you to name your favorite books, but uh, can you tell us a couple of books or a book maybe, uh, which has really impacted you in your life, right? You know, may, has helped you, uh, I don't know, has changed your worldview or has made you think about things in a different manner or has influenced you to take certain actions or decisions or something that you keep going back to for guidance. Might might be anything. It might be a book, a bunch of books, anything that crossed your mind when I say this statement. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many answers coming to mind. I'm trying to figure out which which approach to take. Um, so let's see. Um, well, okay. So, so so I think on the on the fiction front. Um, and, and probably, probably a book that sort of informed even the book that I've written. Um, 
I one of my breakout books was the book Roots by Alex mm -hmm. Haley. Um, mm -hmm. So um, and so that was sort of you know that was one that you know this kind of is the same theme, right? That's one of the first books I in middle school I picked it up, I read it, and I'm just like, I was like, I was like, oh, you know, here's a you know here's a bunch you know so Roots is about uh, you know the it's a quasi fictional. Um, probably mostly fictional, but it, it, it's sort of a reconstructed history of an African American, right? And so Alex right, really right. kind of talks about his, where um, right. his great 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 grandfather, Kumtak Kinte, and who was a thing right. um, captured from Gambia and then brought to the U.S. as a slave. Right. And so, and so to me, that was, um, I think that like sort of broke. That's what sort of broke open the doors of representation. I was like, I was like, mm -hmm. because I realized that you know, at least for Indian Americans, we go we go to the U.S. mostly voluntarily. We go like we, we sort of if we're making a cultural trade-off, if we're leaving the right, right, option, right, like we're doing it right, for economic reasons, right. and we're doing it and, and I had an option, right? Like I could reach back and I'm, I'm living in India now, so that, that option is there. Um right. whereas African Americans literally had their history, their culture, everything stolen from them, right? right. And, and like to to you know, you were you they're moved away, they weren't really it made it very difficult for them to keep their language. Okay. Almost all of them lost their language. I think they all did lose their language in, in some sense. Made them both forced to convert in some way to Christianity. Like, mm -hmm. and they and they were ripped from their families repeatedly, right? And so, right. so, so then you know, I, I, that was sort of in the same theme, in the same vein. I did a lot to help me kind of realize the importance of um, learning one's own, have, making sure that everyone has an opportunity to learn about their own culture, their own history, um, right. and have that accessible. Um, right. Uh, another uh, on the more sort of academic -y side, there's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow um, mm -hmm. by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, have you read it? I, it's actually on my to read list. It's right lying right there on my next to my bed. It's the one that I'm going to read next. But it's I've heard way too much about it from too many people, so I yeah. somewhat know what you're going to talk about. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so Daniel Kahneman is a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics, right? So he's kind mm -hmm. of a weird duck in that way. Um, but he, but he basically, he basically, the book is about, well, it's about, um, cognitive illusions, right? So like a visual, visual illusions when you think you see something, but you don't really, right? It's like a magic trick, um, or a mirage, um, and cognitive illusions when you think you understand something, but you really don't. Um, and, and so that, that sort of made me sort of really question a lot of things that I do and wonder, is this, is it really, is it really logical? Is it really rational? Why am I doing this? Um, and it and it helped me, I think, develop a richer understanding of my world. And one of the things he talks about is the difference between remembered and experienced happiness. So, like, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, if I ask you if you're happy, you can either kind of answer the question right now, do you feel happy, or you can kind of be like, you know, you know, you think back retrospectively, you know, mm. have you been happy in the last you know week or whatever. And people's answers to those questions will be very different. I might you know feel very happy right now. But then, if you ask me tomorrow whether I felt happy today, I might remember it differently. Um, right. And so, and so, like that made me really question: What does it mean for me to be happy? Like, you know, am I, um, you know, am I, what, what, what kind of happiness do I want, and do I have it? And I found out. I realized that if I, every day for 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 about eight months, I actually scored my own happiness on a scale of one to ten, and I tried to figure out, okay, how happy am I? And but then, if you ask me at the end of that period, said so how how good is the last eight months? Then I, I think about oh like I had this disappointment in dating my work didn't go well like you know mm -hmm. all this stuff and I I, I give myself a low ha lower happiness rate but when I looked at my average happiness for day to day I was way happier um, right. and so it just made me realize that 
you know, I'm a happy guy. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> it's fine. Like, stop worrying about the big picture thing on a day-to-day basis. Life's great. Um, and right. it's changed my world. Yeah. That's, those are two really excellent examples of books that have really hit you hard. And the reason I ask this to almost all uh, writers who come on my show is that, I mean, with books are such things that, well, there are just way, and I'm so glad about it, that there are way too many of them out there. And the more you talk to people about what things hit them harder, it just helps you develop more perspectives and gives you more ideas. I mean, I had no idea about the existence of truths. And I think it's a... I mean, I, I, it's definitely going on my reading list for now. I mean, it's something I would really want to read. So it's just an interesting uh, way of getting to know more from people. So Siddharth, I want to ask you that question, right? Because you're like obviously an unapologetic bibliophile. <laughs> yeah, so, yes. how, so how do you pick what to read? Like, and do you, do, you feel, do you feel okay about being structured about it? Or do you feel like it, there should be like, some magic to whatever comes across your way? So that's, I'm not used to being asked a question on my podcast, but this is great. I'll answer this. Um, okay. So it's a very, I think you captured it perfectly when you use the word magic, right? I mean, as a kid, uh, I would walk into a bookstore and as uh, cheesy as it sounds, there's just times when certain books call out to you, right? Like you're just browsing and there's a particular book that catches your eye or it just feels right or it reads right or the or you know the summary seems something like you want to read but now it's gotten a lot more structured uh i don't know if it's for the best or for the worst but uh what i read now is as i said now it's a lot more structured in terms of okay this is the kind of area that i'm trying to read about so for the past couple of years i've been trying to read a lot more uh regional work right in india so i've been trying to find authors who write in tamil or in bengali or in odia or like any other language and like get our, get their translations in english so that's largely as part of my effort to kind of understand the country better right uh, i i realize that as someone who's been born and raised in mumbai and who studied in delhi for five years i don't really have i mean i have an experience of meeting people and what that teaches me about the country but this country is way too diverse to kind of understand a lot more things and if, and the same thing i extrapolate on a global level as well so uh, if i'm trying to read uh, so i mean i've read my classics right so i've read when it comes to say if i say colombian literature there is neruda or your uh, gabriel marquez but now i'm trying to find more authors whose work's been translated so that i could read and just get a different uh, idea of how things are happening uh non-fiction it largely falls again similarly in this same pattern that if it there's some a topic that i want to pick up there's just like you research and you pick up things and you know this is an author or an academic who's worked on this um but um I've actually also started. I'm a huge. I started becoming a huge fan of narrative nonfiction. Like that's exactly why one your book really piqued my interest as well. Uh, so that's something that's been happening recently a lot. That uh, I've been picking up interesting nonfiction books which I'm not, well, I wouldn't have been reading generally, but because they're written in a particular manner, and I mean I can figure that out from the way it's described. Uh, it seems like a more appealing read to me. So well, yeah, that's uh, that's that, Nitin. But uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time now, so we're gonna end the podcast now. Thank you so much for joining in. This was a lovely conversation, and I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it as well. And uh, the link to your books will be available in the uh, description box below. People, please check it out. It's a lovely read. It's uh, one that makes you think a lot about a, diff- a lot of different things. And uh, just like the beginning of the conversation that I had with Nitin. Uh, it'll leave you with thoughts all over the place and thinking about a lot of different things. 
so please check it out and you can find them at any of your bookstores nearby or on amazon or on flipkart the uh, descriptions on links are in the description below thank you nitin thank you for joining in thanks that real pleasure thanks for that if you enjoyed this podcast please check us out on all our social media platforms we are available across all podcasting platforms on youtube on instagram you can find us at the rate kitabi karwan on instagram or just search kitabi karwan on google or a platform of your choice and you'll find us we carry out instagram lives giveaways we talk about books we talk to bibliophiles talk to authors and basically try and create a readers world through all of our platforms do check us out and don't forget to like share and subscribe thank you